Do we have any questions at all? Anything left over from last week? Last week we did that marvelous one about the cross, cross incarnation between East and West and uh, Master um, always incarnating to reorganize history. It was very, very interesting. That was number 91, 191 and 190. Okay, now we go into a wholly different flow. Ready? So, oh, now we can start. Number 193. It wasn't easy during the early days at Mount Washington, the Master told us, to get this work started. Few people understood and few even cared about what I was actually trying to accomplish. This is Master speaking. Once I had to move away from Mount Washington. I rented a house elsewhere. Divine Mother, I prayed, chop off all their heads. <laughs> what a blunt way to put it. After a few days, the place was empty. The troublemakers had gone, and I was able to return once again to an atmosphere of peace. In the vision I had in 1948, Divine Mother said to me, in the early years, I sent you a few bad ones to test your love for me. Now I am sending you angels, and whoever smites them, I will smite. You know, it's, um, I think it's highly unfortunate in a spiritual work when people whitewash history. Um, and there's been a certain, I mean, the movie Awake did a, a lot to bring out uh, more of what Master's real struggles were. And of course, Swami's book, The Path, and his biography of Master were more multidimensional. But SRF takes the approach of just sort of, everything is fine now, so we just sort of want to act as if everything was always fine. And the difficulty of that, besides being not very interesting, is that it gives um, the individual devotee a very false idea of what the spiritual path is like. Because if everything is always okay, if, if things are not okay for me, then, I, then the devotee has to think that I'm doing something wrong. And it really starts with the presentation of Master and Master's life. I was actually quite surprised that in the Awake movie they allowed as much of his struggle and his giving it all up and going to Mexico and various things to be shown in that movie because it really told you that even he, or more accurately, no one who incarnates on the physical plane is immune from the struggles of the physical plane. And, and even the very definition of what a master is has to be adjusted to that reality because otherwise the master just walks on the scene, everything goes perfectly, and then he walks off. And where is the example? You know, with Swami Kriyananda's life, all the different things that happened to him, the, the lesson in the end became grace under fire. How do, you, how do you cope when the world turns on you? How do you cope when things are very difficult? And it wasn't the picture of, oh, now that I'm a devotee, everything goes well. It's the picture that because I'm a devotee, how do I deal with what happens to me in life? Because it happens to everyone. And that is an infinitely more valuable lesson because if nothing ever challenges you, you don't really even need the spiritual path. You just go along without anything anyway. So when Master also, the other part of why it's important, I think, to have the history of Master's life more accurate is because it, he didn't just come to found an organization. I mean, he didn't just arrive with beautiful carpets and uh, beautiful wallpaper and marvelous furniture and everybody dressed in coordinated outfits and I mean that just wasn't at all what happened. He, 
He rented the Mount Washington, he bought the Mount Washington place. It was a wreck. It had been abandoned for some period of time when he moved into it. And he just, it, he, he rented out rooms. He had, to pay, he had to pay for what he was doing. As he comments in India, the guru is supported by the devotees. In America, the guru has to support the devotees. I mean, they all come to live there and then he has to generate the income. And he was immensely practical and aggressive in his efforts. He didn't just sit there and expect the money to come. And he had all these rooms in Mount Washington. It was an income-producing story. And so he, he rented rooms. And some of it was just publicly advertised. Not so different from us, actually, now that I think about it. Where you describe what it is that you have. And you sort of, there are certain parameters and people come in. That was exactly what he was doing. Except it was a hotel. So there were hotel rooms. It was a, a different story. And you can imagine, there were a lot of characters who moved in and um, I'm, I'm always so intrigued by that picture of Master walking on the streets of New York with those three or four people who are all just, you know, dressed up in really what you can only call rather outlandish get-ups. And Master was dressed in his orange robes, being Indian, but these were obviously Americans, and what are they wearing? They're wearing some, you know, some fanciful concept of what... A, uh, but an Indian or a spiritual person, who knows? You know, and, they're, and they're all just walking down the street together and there's no, the camera doesn't pan to see the expressions of the people around them. But Master, in one of, Master appeared on the stage with this man named Ahmed Bey. He would do, I mean, he would, he would bury himself in sand. And maybe I don't have it exactly right, but he did all kinds of magic tricks. And Master would share the stage with him. I mean, this is among the reasons why thousands of people came to see him. But Master just worked with what he found. You know, here was this man, and he was trying to do a spiritual work, and he was a little more closer to where Master was than most of the bankers in New York were. So he just, he was very creative and very fluid and very accepting of many options and not at all the sort of this is who we are and this is what we do. I mean, over the course of time, he was gradually able to bring the thing to a focus but even when he brought it to a focus, he never brought it to a rigid focus. And it, and it all came out of this enormous creativity in the very early issues of the Self-Realization magazine. It was called East-West Magazine then. There are all these little ads. You gradually realize they're all ads for businesses that Master himself is running. <laughs> he had, a, he had a, a, I think he had goat milk. They might have had carrot juice. They had a papaya farm. Um, and somewhere there's the ad for the little Temple of Silence, which is the the thing that fit over your head like this and shut off your ears and then had this little star that bounced in front of you and you would put it on and you would meditate. It was, to, it was just to shut your ears. It was like headphones to shut your ears. But then he just added this little star that was in... Pardon me? It was spiritual Yeah, well, it was a spiritual eye, right? So when you could meditate, you could open your eyes and you could see this. But, I mean, it just like... He was out there trying to make it happen. Yeah, entrepreneurial. His father sent him some money, but I, don't, I think he didn't want his father's money. He was very entrepreneurial. And when you are, you're very, very flexible. And he took people who had enough going on, but he, he wasn't. The autobiography hadn't been published. It wasn't published until the, the end of his life. People had no idea who he was. And as we've talked about in earlier sections, Swamiji himself said, Master presented himself very differently. He just... He, he kept his own state of consciousness. He didn't refer to it. Swami was talking there. At the end of his life, Master referred very impersonally 
to his state of consciousness. But in the earlier years, Swami speculated many different reasons, one of which was he wanted, he wanted other people to feel that like what he had accomplished, they could easily accomplish. So he emphasized his similarity rather than his difference. Because he was trying to build a bridge. If he'd just come in and said, I was God realized back when I was Arjuna with Krishna, where would that leave people? And it, it, his, his intention wasn't, his intention was very different. He had nothing at stake himself. It's interesting, in the Awake movie, the documentary about Master's life, they actually have, uh, Marina Lini is the one they quote, but they say after Master came back, from India in 1936 and Sri Yukteswar had gone, then Master, they made it seem like Master entered a higher state of consciousness at that point. But uh, Swamiji says that, you know, that's simply not true, but he expressed himself differently. I know he may have expressed himself differently or he may have let more of it show, who knows? I don't really, you know, I wasn't there. But I, I know with my experience with Swami over 40 plus years, he was extremely different in the way he expressed himself at the end of his life than at the beginning. My perception, my incredibly limited ant-like perception, was that he was exactly the same. But he presented himself very differently. And at a certain point, about just a couple of years before he died, I told him that when people asked me that question, my answer was that I felt that he had never changed but that the way he presented himself to the world was now completely different. And he said, that's true. Just like that. And it was just, that's true. It was just, his work was done. He didn't have to protect himself from that. He felt um, relieved of the burden of Diamata's constant disapproval. There were lots of different things going on that all, mainly his work was done. Because his, um, his, his, his being held, Master held him back from certain states of consciousness because if he'd been able to enter into those states, he wouldn't have done the work. You have exactly the same story in the life of, Ram, of Vivekananda. In Vivekananda's life, early on, Ramakrishna gives him an extremely exalted experience of cosmic consciousness. And then Ramakrishna says, I'm going to take the key and I'm going to put it in my pocket, he said, because you have a lot of work to do. And he said, when, when you're done, I'll give you the key back. And that's how Vivekananda talked about it. At the end of his life, his guru gave him the key back. But in between, he kept it in his pocket. So it's interesting. I mean, Master, of course, it was different. But nonetheless, I think it was simply, it fit what he needed to do in order to do that. So this story about Mount Washington just becoming so dissonant that he just wasn't even going to stay there. He, I mean, he didn't stay there. He just walked out and left it and left it to Divine Mother to clean house. And then the house was cleaned, and then he went back. I mean, I can see it from, from my experiences. I rem uh, from experiences of Ananda at the beginning, um, one of my favorites was when uh, this delegation from the... Uh, they, I think they were from Venus, actually. I was going to say they were from the Pleiades. Yeah, Venus, the planet Venus. I, I, I was going to say they were from the Pleiades, but I think they were actually from the planet v Venus. And there was like three or four of them, they were all from Venus, except for one man who said he was the token earthling. <laughs> and they were just, they just were perfectly nice. They were actually very nice people, but they were convinced that they were all from the planet Venus. And, you know, they were traveling around to meet kindred spirits and looking 
for their f fellow Venusians. And, but they, I mean, that was just really, we had a lot of that. We had a lot of people coming through. And when I read again in Vivekananda's life, when he first came to America, and they, they had some retreats somewhere out in the country, and some man came with a black tent. He set up, a, they were just describing in the book, you know, he set up a black tent and, and just some weird character who was looking for his own. And a lot of them passed through Ananda. And you can imagine a lot of them passed through Master's life. Either people who are actually literally unbalanced or just eccentric and seeing that Master was eccentric, you know, felt a certain kinship with him and but sometimes they weren't really. In our years at Ananda, we graduated. It took us a while to figure this out. A lot of people who were not mentally balanced and therefore for whom meditation was not really a, a recommended practice, um, they could tell that we also didn't live in a button-down world. And they didn't live in a button-down world, so they thought we were the same. You know? and, and at first, we, we, didn't, we really couldn't tell the difference. We gradually realized that people who were not really um, mentally stable we got really used to just shipping them off really fast. At first, we, we would sort of hang around and think we could bring them into balance, but, but they, they sensed us. They sensed that we were more like them than the people on the street, but not really. So you can see the same thing would happen with Master. But chop their heads off, what a thing to say. <laughs> I think it was in a, man, a manner of speaking. I don't know if it was a, a question of the English language or not. Um, sometimes people whose language, first language is another will bring idioms from their own language into this one. And they can sound very strange. Or the opposite. I remember when Swami was talking about an Italian man that he had grown quite fond of. And he said, you know, when I first met him, I wasn't sure about him. But you know, he grows on you. And then Swami thought for a moment. He said, how would I ever tell him that that was positive? <laughs> he grows on you like a fungus or something. <laughs> My favorite shift of just the little tiny twist between the idiom uh, and the, 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 the literal was when Bella from Russia, Bella Potapovskaya, was just, she was a very strong-willed woman and she'd made up her mind about something and she declared the only way that would happen would be through her corpse. I said, through your corpse? When she was trying to say it was over my dead body. <laughs> She got it. Every so often I'm tempted to say that through my corpse. <laughs> um, the last part of this, Swami, here, where he says, in the vision I had in 1948, Divine Mother told me I sent you a few lemons in the beginning, a few bad ones, but now I'm sending you angels. That was when Master had that three-day samadhi uh, in which... Um, he spoke to Divine Mother, and then Divine Mother spoke through his voice. In, in our play about uh, the, the disciples, Durga Mata talked about being there, how the girls took turns writing down everything that Master was saying because it was so unusual, such an unusual samadhi. So, so he, would, he would say, and then she would answer, but they would hear all sides of the conversation. But that statement was made, I sent you bad ones in the beginning to test you but now I'm sending you angels. Swami comments, modestly, but nonetheless he comments. He said that vision was in August of 1948 and September 12, 1948. He said, I came. Swami did. 
And Swami says he, he, he was the first, he believes, he was the first disciple to come after that vision. When we were <clears throat> being tormented horribly by the press and by the courts, <laughs> sometimes we would say, when he, he mentioned that in some context, that he, was the, he came afterwards and we sort of said, uh, I think it's time for a little smiting. <laughs> we need a little more smiting around here. <laughs> If those who smite them, I will smite. Well, we were getting plenty of smiting directed at us. We would have liked to have seen some directed at others. Bear in mind that was a joke. <laughs> I don't want you to feel that we'd said that seriously, but we did say that. We made a lot of jokes during those years. We had, we, our humor was really sharp. It had to be. I mean, we were, we were on top of our game because we were so pressed. Any comments or questions about any of that? It's also interesting. I sent you some bad ones. I mean, here's a master, and you would think that the only people who would come to him would be very high souls. But he, enough people came to him that he had to drive them away. And, and no one crossed his path except that there was a purpose. So even these souls who were difficult found themselves in the company of a master. However, they had the bad karma to repudiate him or not to cooperate with him. It's a little complicated to understand, isn't it? It, it's all, of course, it's all part of God's plan. I mean, you have the story of Ravana, who was the great uh, villain of the, Maha, of the Ramayana. And Ravana was, you know, this is the way they say, that Ravana was, in fact, a great devotee of Rama and decided that the best way to keep his mind always on Rama would be to hate him. <laughs> so he became the villain, and he was Rama's enemy. But, in fact, he was greatly devoted to Rama. I mean... They're wonderful ways to say it. It's just a way of saying you never know what's happening in this world. <laughs> but still, so a lot of people passed in Master's path who were not good people. But somehow the contact with him must have uh, done something for them. I remember a, a woman talking who's, who had uh, her son uh, lived a very, she was a very refined person and her son just wasn't. He had all this violent and very bad, expressive karma ended up being shot to death. But she says she just remembers at a certain point, realizing that he just he was just going to go down a little farther before he made the turn. And she felt that he'd come to her because he was close to being able to make the turn. But he wasn't quite there yet. So her, her part was just to sort of stand with him while he went out a little farther. So, because that's what happens to everyone sooner or later, is that the suffering becomes so intense, I mean, whether it happens in a little sort of dignified, refined way, or whether it happens in a shootout with the police, whatever it is, at a certain point, the suffering becomes more than you can bear, and you'll begin to think about the divine again. Again, or for the first time. Certainly, even any evil person who came across Master must have been ready to make the turn. I think that's what the story about Ravana is supposed to be about. I don't really, I can't really say. I'm sure there's a great deal of, I'm sure, there's thousands and thousands of words of commentary on that very point, but I don't know them. So, okay, any questions or comments before we go on? Number 194. The following story appears in my book, The Path. It concerns Durga's, Florina Darling's, brother. 
who was extremely hostile to the master for having drawn his sister to Mount Washington. Originally, I believe the when uh, Durga, when she was still Florina, married to Mr. Darling, and I guess they were they in Chicago, I think somewhere, or Detroit, and they met Master. The brother was involved. They were all in it together. So they all started together, and they were finding Master's path together, but Durga really took to it, and her husband essentially gave her up so she could join Master at Mount Washington. And the brother went with, went there, and I think he had a wife, and there was some, and he lived at Mount Washington for a while. But he, he ended up turning against it rather than embracing it. And of course, they had been close, and then all of a sudden Master had come between them. You see how very complicated it can get. This brother was physically strong at this brother was physically strong. He decided to give Master a good beating so that he could boast later in public how he bested the charlatan. My, my. Wow. Master says, I was seated on my bed one morning meditating, the Master told us, when God warned me that this man was coming up the stairs intending to beat me up. When he arrived at my door, he paused briefly on the threshold. I opened my eyes and said, I know why you've come. I want you to know that I'm very strong. I could easily best you physically. I won't do that, however. I won't lift a finger against you. Nevertheless, I warn you, don't cross the threshold. My goodness, what a dramatic story. Can you just see Master just sitting there in meditation, you know, and he probably was perfectly still and just opens his eyes like that. And here's this guy standing in front of him and Master's just looking across at him, prob probably not moving a muscle, just speaking like that. I'm very strong. I could easily beat you. And this guy who's possessed of Satan at this point, I mean, in terms of just channeling dark confusion, so the man says, go on, prophet, he sneered. He stepped across the threshold and fell suddenly screaming to the floor. I'm on fire, he cried, I'm on fire. He leapt to his feet and rushed down the stairs, running out of doors. There he rolled on the lawn in hope of finding relief on the cool grass. Master says, I hurried after him, stooped down, and reaching out my hand, relieved him of his pain. Don't come near me, he shouted, terror-stricken. He sent for his sister, had her fetch his belongings, and fled. Now, was that in, in Autobiography of a Yogi when they tell the story of the man who gave the lime to Trilanga Swami? And Trilanga Swami, the story is said he, that, that he didn't really do anything. It was just the boomerang effect of his own karma. That the, the force of going against that much light caused, caused all that to come to him. Did Master actually, it's hard to imagine that Master actually, you know, used power to injure him. You just can't imagine that happening. But it might have just been the force of that darkness, like, a, uh, like the way the demons would scream when they came near Jesus. You know, the, one, the ones who were possessed would come close to him and then the demons would become quite upset and hysterical and they would just, the, the person's body that they were running would become completely unhinged. 
Was there a dark force inside of this man? Clearly. Was it just the inevitable? Swami doesn't explain it in any of the places he tells the story. You don't mind? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so, it's so touching in a way, the fact that Master hurries down the stairs to go relieve him of his suffering. Exactly. So it's the, the, the center of the story is not around the punishment, yeah. but... The, the, the relief. That relief, that opportunity for the man to wake up. Well, it was instant karma, that's for sure. <laughs> what I was talking about, was it, I don't know when, but recently I was talking about instant karma is good karma because you put out the bad energy and you immediately get the results and there's no, if you're awake, there's no question in your mind as to what caused what. But this man just began to think that Master was evil. He probably never, for the rest of his life, changed his mind. Imagine what that did to Durga. I mean, this is her brother. I mean, by then she's quite a renunciate, but... She's not immune to human feeling. So now, not only is he not sharing this life with her, he's become the enemy of this life. You know, she's not going to hesitate, but it can't have been fun for her to have that. Pass it back to Ekavir. Is it necessary that um, that man, could, could, it he, could he have been a disciple still, and oh, that yes. he disobeyed his guru. Oh yes. I mean, there's seems like there's a lot of times where a disciple. I mean, he is a disciple. Of, well, you have the example of Judas. You have the biggest example of all. You know, Judas's actual name has become synonymous with the word traitor. You can say someone is a Judas, and you just you can't think of anyone who was. Uh, more treacherous in their behavior than Judas. But Swami tells us, Master tells us, that Judas was liberated in the, eight, in the end of the 1800s or the, into the 1900s. He was liberated in this incarnation and that Master knew him. He was a disciple of Ramakrishna. That Jesus sent him to Ramakrishna to be freed. So clearly he figured it out in between and his salvation was only going to come through Master. And there's the story of Dhirananda who betrayed Master and took all the money and sued him and gave him horrible publicity in Los Angeles and married a white woman and remained Master's enemy all that time. And I, he was the one to whom Master sent the carton of mangoes every year. And he would send them back unopened. And every year Master would send it. He said he'll never find God except through this vehicle himself. So there was no question about his discipleship. Now... Many people who come to a master, as Swamiji put it, are, are still making up their minds. And I mean, I recall I had this, I put this in the book I wrote about Swamiji. I had that situation at Ananda in, this, in a cycle of about six or seven years. I had two different women work for me, both of whom were not ca uh, competent. Not, they were too emotional to be consistent. And the first one, um, I said to Swamiji, you know, if I, if I respond to her appropriately for the way she's behaving, I feel that it will distress her so much emotionally that she'll just, she'll just run away. I said, so I have this feeling that I shouldn't do that. No, no, he said, don't do that. He said, she belongs to us. The most important thing is to keep her here. You know, it just nothing else matters. Just don't, don't lose her. You know, at the end of Jesus' life, he said, I haven't lost any of the sheep. 
except the one that chose to be lost? I mean, that's how Jesus measured his success, is that I didn't lose any of the sheep. So Swami's saying to this woman, she belongs to us. In fact, it was interesting because years earlier, she had mailed Swami a letter. I was his secretary. I handed him the letter. He held the letter in his hand. He didn't open it. He said, this woman belongs with us. Yeah. And he just did. And uh, so he... For a long time, but not forever. Um, Because she was not stable enough. Um, But he told me, whatever you do, don't lose her. So I had to figure out how to have her work in such a way that I could still function. (laughs) I I, I figured out ways that... Because she was quite... When she was good, she was very good. So I just made sure that whatever her contribution was, it was extra. So that things could be made better by her contribution, but they couldn't be undermined by her collapse. But then a few years later, another person working for me, different personality, but essentially the same thing, just very, very, very emotional and volatile. And I said to Swami, you know, this is similar, I said, but it feels different. And I said, I feel like I really need to, you know, be frank with this lady. I just don't feel that it's right to just let her keep acting as if the way she's acting is okay. And I said, but I remember the before and he said she's still making up her mind he said just give her the opportunity to decide don't coddle her was what he said just you know just be frank with her and let her decide she has to rise to it it's not already the debt's not already there she's making up her mind and she she actually left her negative she really went away she was making up her mind you know the challenge was in front of her so merely because you walk in and announce that I belong here, as Swami said, has said, he said, it's a little presumptuous to declare that I accept Jesus Christ and therefore I'm saved. Jesus also has to agree. <laughs> and you might want to assume that he'll agree, but there's a certain amount of, um, how would I say it? I mean, you have to rise to it. It's, you can't just drag God down to your level and expect him to meet you where you stand, you have to also lift your consciousness at least in sincere aspiration. You don't have to, see, you have to understand, you don't have to be talented or good, but you have to be deeply sincere. And and in many qualities like that, you have to attract the grace. But that's a very, it's a very, um, when Swami, whenever Swami talks about this, I said, sir, this is very subtle and could be very disconcerting. Because we want to think that if we accept Jesus, we are saved. It would be very, very scary to think maybe I'm not. Um, but if, if the humility is there, I mean, he, he sort of reassured me, you don't have to be so paranoid about this. It's not like everybody who thinks they're a disciple, only two of them actually are. You know, it's, it's not really like that. But it, there is a, a degree of uh, responsibility on our side that has to be thought about. So where was this man in that cycle? Was he merely a Judas? Or was he never in? You know, Master made that comment about one of the ministers when there were a number of people at a time when people were leaving Mount Washington and Master would often come and, oh, he'll be back in three lifetimes. He'll be back in five lifetimes. And this other man who had been the minister of one of the churches and when Swami asked, when will he be back? And Master said, oh, never. He was never in. You know, he, he Master helped him, but the man inside himself had never really 
made the commitment, and so there was no commitment from Master because it just wasn't there. Very confusing. You know, nothing is... Everything, I always say the true stories are always much more interesting than the, than the cartoon versions. <laughs> you know, there's just always much more nuance, much more subtlety in it. I was reading something that Swami said at a discipleship initiation he gave, actually in 1989, just to be exact. And he said, there's just, if, you're, if, you're, if you sincerely love God and desire God, he said, there's nothing you can do that can ever break that tie. And he, he said, don't ever say because I've fallen, I've failed. He said, everybody falls. He said, merely falling is not failure. You've just falled. You've just fallen. You've just falled. That's all. And he said, you have to understand that you judge yourself, but God never judges you. He just loves you and waits. He said, the only thing that matters is just that you sincerely keep trying. And there's, we, we, have, we, we weigh and measure it. By, by worldly standards, and it's very hard for us to understand, God reads the heart. I, I was recently, I read this um, uh, story recently. There's a man named Edward Curtis who lived in the 1800s and into the early 1900s. And he's famous because he devoted his entire life to photographing the last of the American Indians. So all of the super classic, gorgeous photos of American Indians are virtually all his work. He spent 30 years just doing all of that. And his own story is complicated, and it's, it's too long to tell, but it was quite interesting. Um, and he, 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 he decided as a young man that he would document these Indians before they were gone, because every day someone was dying, and it was just almost too late. He, he got money from J.P. Morgan, the philanthropist, to do it. But Morgan was tight-fisted, even though he was wealthy. And so he made a deal with him that was terrible, which was that he never got a salary for what he did. And he, he, he said it would cost $75,000 and he would be finished in five years. It cost, I don't know, 10 times that, and it took him 30 years. So he, was, he lost his marriage. He never was able to raise his children. He was bankrupt and... Just one thing after another. But he finished. He, he set himself, he was going to do 20 volumes of these books about every existing Indian tribe, and he did it. And they're just, it's just classic. But his karma, he, just nothing worked for him. Everything went wrong. And this was the final one where I just, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh, this is so hard. What a horrid story. He's way, he's way ahead of his time in photography. He invented a great deal of, of photographic techniques. And one of the reasons his picture, everything was so outstanding is because of all of that. And then moving pictures started, so he got movie cameras in. And one of the ways he was going to get out of debt, or get money, was he managed to uh, borrow $100,000 to make this docudrama <laughs> of these northern Indians. And he made the first thing like this with authentic costumes and and in all Indian actors, instead of, he said, Italians with mustaches, <laughs> he said they were all Indian actors. And he had, you know, he had all this authentic stuff. And he did this, like, I don't know whether it was an hour or 90 minutes. You know, when there was almost no, moving pictures were nothing but just shoot them up kind of things. He was way, way ahead. He filmed on location, all of this stuff. Then he brings it to the, to the theaters. He has got authentic Indian music. 
He has all the people playing. It's an absolute stunner of a success. Complete sellout. The critics think it's, it's fantastic. Four performances. And he sees all the money's going to come in. He has a disagreement with his distributor. The distributor files the lawsuit. The court confiscates the film. And it never came out. It just went away. And it never came back. It was never shown again until 10 years, 20 years after he had died. I, I just thought, no, no, really, that isn't what happened. You know, he worked so hard. He was so talented. But it just wasn't his karma. It was like whatever. He, he had such a strange... And because it was so dramatic, I thought, wow, there's really nothing we can do. And he, he, his was a victorious life, tremendously, because he had a destiny, and he did it, and he followed it with tremendous hardship and sacrifice all the way to the end. But money, he was never supposed to have money. You know, what do you think he was balancing? Who knows? But it was, I had to shut the book for a while. Well, it was my Kindle, but I had to turn it off, and I just had to think. Uh, Edward Curtis. The book, the, name, the book has the title Shadow Catcher. That was his Indian name. Something, something Shadow Catcher, The Short Life or Something of the Shadow Catcher. It's a, quite an interesting book. I've always, I've always, uh, I've had, I had a very strong tie with that man's photographs, you know, in the 70s looking at all those American Indians. That's not the point. The point is karma. And why did I bring that up? Why would I have brought that up? Let me see if I can trace it back. Oh, yes, just about you don't know. Yeah, you don't know what people are balancing. And mainly I just wanted to tell you that story because it was so incredible. But when you think about, he was like Van Gogh in a real sense. I mean, he was a true artist and a, and a great man in his art. He also seemed like a, a fine man in many ways. Not in all ways, but in many ways. But that, that part of his life, he just had bad karma there. Or he had destiny that had to be worked out. So you never know. Oh, it was also, it was like God never abandons us. We just, victory is, is not to quit. Victory is to be courageous in face of obstacles, to be creative in face of whatever happens. And then just eventually, it'll all, you know, he'll probably just be effortlessly wealthy in the future. Just probably everything he puts his hand to will just, you know, turn into gold for him. And everybody will think how talented he is. Pardon me? Well... His will was very inspiring. Yeah, it's quite, it was quite something. Okay. Well, on that happy note, shall we move on? But he, you know, those Indians were dying every day. And if he hadn't done that, we would really have no record. He wasn't the only one, but he was the main one. We would have no record of what their lives were like. And you know what I remember particularly, because it was, um, I, this was in the 70s. I guess I was living out in the, in the woods and... I just had this tremendous sense of these people. And I had, somebody gave me a calendar or a book. And I was just looking at their faces. And, and so many of those people, you could just see how deep and interesting their character was. You know, there was nothing primitive or savage. It was so interesting. They had such fascinating faces. And we take it for granted with our photography methods now. But for him to be able to photograph them so... Um, magnificently was really um, you can just go online 
Actually, Edward Curtis, Photographs of Indians. I mean, I, I discovered, it used to be different than that, but you can. You know, in almost every iconic photograph of American Indians was his, that you've seen in all these decades since. You know, and a lot of other people make a lot of money. Pardon me? He went all over the country. He lived, he was from Seattle, but he went from Alaska, you know, down to Oklahoma and I don't know, if, but he tried, he tried, you know, he, he went everywhere. He tried to, that was his project. He was going to, he was going to find every single existing tribe and document, document it. I, I was just thinking about what Master had said about America um, and Americans, America's kar- karma uh-huh. uh, in terms of the American Indians. And I'm thinking this man in some way maybe played a role in, in, in some way, hoping to awaken, maybe he wasn't conscious of that, but hoping to awaken our, our, know, our uh, karma and to yeah. know that we would have to do something about that. Oh, he was quite... Um, he really brought that to... The other thing in the book that's just so, you know, you, you really want to scream is the extraordinary mistreatment. And he was quite upset about it. He made a decision in his books that they wouldn't be polemics against the U.S. government. They would just be the stories of the Indian. He, he, he put in a little bit now and then, but he decided that wasn't the point. It wasn't a bad, he wasn't going to rehash old fights. But the treatment was um, bad. And so, yeah, was he, had he been the great chief and he was going to save it? Had he been a terrible white man who was living with remorse? You know, you just, you don't know what the karma is, that he would have such a, determination and sacrificed everything. All right. I skipped it for some reason. I love to read, I like to read true stories where, where you have to philosophically try to understand and where for me, where it's a, it's a low risk opportunity to stay calm in the midst of adversary. <laughs> Where it's just like, I don't really have anything at stake, but I get vicariously to practice um, trusting God and being centered. And of course, history is a great teacher because when it's somebody else's life and they're dead and it's all over, it all looks different than when it's your life and you're in the middle of it. You know, when it's happening. I was re- reading some story about some spiritual group, and I don't even remember what the project was. It was there some true story about some, you know, some, some altruistic work with a spiritual bent. And just how every time they came up against almost disaster and God would rescue them. And I found myself thinking, well, why are they so nervous? They know God's going to rescue them. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Asha, if you were standing there, you don't. You know, in 50 years later, you can see but all of it was just right on the edge. That's why, I, coming back to where I started, that's why it, it encourages me to know that Master had to work. It, of course, encourages me just to see what Swami's life was really like, because then I know nothing is... I'm not, I'm not making mistakes. I'm just living. You know, everybody has to go through this. This is what it is to be on this plane. It's as someone said, it's the kind of world where you have to big... You have to pick up the rocks and move them. You can't just sort of will them to roll across to where you want them to be. You have to use crowbars to get them out of the ground. All right. So where were we? 
Pardon me? 195. Yes, there it is. Yeah, I've got it. Why, someone once asked me, did Yogananda display such particular love for Rajasi, St. Lin, his chief disciple? This is Swami speaking. Swami answers, it was never particular, I answered. He felt the same love for everyone. This is a beautiful passage. He couldn't express that love to all of us, however, for we wouldn't have been able to understand it. It would have given most people a big ego. Few sincere disciples even were pure-hearted enough to understand the divinely impersonal level of his love for everyone. The master couldn't show deep feeling except to those who themselves knew what it is to love impersonally. It's a very interesting... In the, I've seen letters between Master and Rajasi. Um, and Master's, the extravagant affection that Master expresses to Rajasi, even when you understand it, it's, it's really quite um, startling almost to just see him pour his heart out without any reservation. And in, in many different places, Master says things like, if it weren't for you, you know, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be able to do this work. If it weren't for you, I'd just go to India and then come back and just what, and never come back. And then just what Swami's saying, who, who could understand that? Even when we read it, I don't think the, most of those letters have been published or are likely to be because I don't think SRF would feel comfortable putting that out there because it's so hard to understand. Yes, Kathy? Passages of Rumi yeah. in which he, he talks to his love. Right, and, in the same uh, that, way. that are just extravagant also. And, you know, there's a whole little book out of uh-huh. his love poems to this man yeah. who came, sort of came and went. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the same sort of thing. It's, um, it's easier... It's easier if you don't know them and there's no photographs. <laughs> but yes, it's true. It would be true. And then to go on with this passage, Master once told me, when I met Yogi Ramya in Ramana Maharshi's ashram, it was a true meeting of souls. We walked hand in hand around the ashram together. Oh, if I'd remained in his company another half hour, I could never have brought myself to leave India again. He represented everything that is to me the true India. It is why I love that country so much. Now, again, you sort of... I mean, the way Master put it, if I'd spent another 30 minutes in his company, I couldn't have left. He couldn't have left him. He couldn't have left India. But there's also this this freedom of heart that Master has, where there's just he doesn't have any reason to... Um, hold anything back. I mean, you read that in when you read Whispers from Eternity. It's just, he just pours himself out with just, there's no sense of propriety or sense of uh, protection or self-protection or the necessity to appear a certain way. He just is what he is. And so he meets Yogi Ramya, who uh, Master said was a fully liberated soul who just lived very quietly in India, was more advanced than his guru, is how Master described him. But uh, uh, anyway, Swamiji says, when I met Yogi Rami in 1962 in his native village of, I'm not going to pronounce it, 
of, of the seven-syllable name. <laughs> in Andhra Pradesh, he was known as Sri Rama Yogi. Paul Brutton, however, in his search for secret India, calls him Yogi Ramya. That was also how Master knew him. Paul Brutton, whom I met there, this is Master speaking, was another disciple of Ramana Maharshi's. Brutton once told me that during meditation one day, Yogi Rami had materialized before him and asked him to send him a photograph of me. He wanted to put it in his room. It is sitting there still. Now, I had some really interesting thoughts about that when I read that. Um, because Swami said when he met Yogi Ramya that he was living in this tiny village in a little hut and that nobody, he didn't have a coterie of disciples around him and he, he, he just lived like everyone else. And he, Yogi Ramya himself said, you know, he just, when he talks to the villagers, he just talks about the crops and the weather and the food. He, he doesn't talk to them about anything else. He was completely unrecognized and seemingly not doing very much. And Swami asked him essentially, why, are you, why aren't you doing more with the consciousness that you have? And Yogi Rami answered, you know, God has done what he wants to have done through this one. But when he said this, he wanted to have this photograph of Yogananda and put it in his room. It crossed my mind, what was Yogi Rami doing for Yogananda, with Yogananda? If they had such a, a, an incredible connection between them, and yet their mission in life was so different. That's where Swami, um, the, to finish this, I asked Master, if Yogi Rami was fully liberated, did he have disciples also? He must have had, the Master replied, one must free others. Oh, this is a slightly different point. Um, uh, to become completely free of oneself, how many does one have to free, I asked. Six, was his reply. The next one is the one where Swami asked, why didn't you write about Ram, Yogi Ramya in your autobiography? And Master's answer was, well, Paul Brunton wrote about him. But Swami says maybe he didn't because their missions were so different that, that what Yogi Ramya was doing was so unrelated to what Master was doing. Who knows what the answer was? But the whole bit about the photograph, now was it just the aspect you know, the natural affection that Yogi Ramya felt. He'd, he'd met a kindred spirit and he, he wanted to have that presence in his life? Or was energy going from Yogi Ramya to Yogananda to help him with his mission? You know, in the Catholic tradition, the contemplatives pray for the missionaries. And the ones who are, who are cloistered take on the responsibility of praying for the ones who are in the field. And so I wondered if there was some that's just totally me, just speculating, but you just never know about these things. Well, let's take a short break and then we'll come back. Um, during the break, someone was, re was re reminding me, which I did know, but more clearly, that Ahmed Bey was a very highly evolved soul. He wasn't, a, he wasn't in any way a, a charlatan, not at all. He was a very advanced, very advanced yogi from Egypt. And he you know, the things that he could do on stage were things that he could do. He could control his breath and his heartbeat and he really, and he had his own spiritual work and what his relationship was to Master, I don't know, but they were both serious, um, they, were, they were in this country doing serious spiritual work and he had great, he had great powers. 
but he was of a completely different um, style and origin and lineage than uh, Master was. Uh, the reason I know somewhat about it, when, when we were through, in all those years of litigation, which, you know, they're just like, they're like a shadow of a dream now, and there was this tremendous effort on the part of SRF to disqualify us on the basis of an extremely narrow historical fiction that they were creating about how from the very beginning Master was just so strict and this is exactly what he did and this is only what he accepted and everything had to be this way. And it was a, you know, it was an attempt to twist the law in a way that would allow them to have a religious monopoly. So as part of our defense of all of that, we had to document much that was, had not been documented before, which was how really, in fact, how extremely broad Master was and how supportive he was of, of, of lines of spiritual development that were way outside what they claim was the only acceptable um, possible expression of Master's teachings. So that's why this man with his um, eccentricity and his unusual ways and how, ma how much Master supported him and traveled with him. It was just part of a whole um, authentic picture um, that was necessary for us to bring into court in order to counter the, um, the fiction that was being posited. And the fiction, it was always, it's confusing when you get into a law, law case because everything is, nothing is spoken in pure English and nobody actually talks to each other lawyers write papers and then in this extremely uh, stilted manner all of this is exchanged. So you never knew what they actually believed and what they were just having their lawyers say. Very confusing and no fun at all. And thank God it's over. Okay. And has been for a long, long time. But that's where it came up. That's why in my own mind I thought of him more for his showmanship Ahmed Bey, for his showmanship than his spirituality, because his showmanship and his unusual nature was the part of it that, had, that was relevant in our situation. But in fact, he was quite a, apparently quite an interesting man. Okay, number 196. I asked the master why he hadn't included Ramana Maharshi among the saints in Autobiography of a Yogi. He replied, I didn't include him because Paul Brutton had already written about him in his book, A Search in Secret India. Paul Brutton was a disciple of Ramana Maharshi. And so he knew him from the ashram. That was, you know, th those are A Search in Secret India, and I think he wrote A Search in Secret Egypt, if I'm not mistaken. You know, back in the 70s when all this was starting and there wasn't so much stuff to read, Paul Brutton's books were very interesting. Brutton was a very advanced disciple also. Um, though I didn't say so, Swami speaking, I wondered whether there might not have been another reason also for these two great masters, Paramhansa Yogananda and Ramana Maharshi. Not so much, he wasn't talking about Yogi Ramya. I misrepresented that. Yogananda, Paramhansa Yogananda and Ramana Maharshi had very different roles to play. Um, there is a book about Ramana Maharshi in which is described a visit Yogananda paid to the ashram. Just let me say a little bit about Ramana, Ramana since not everyone knows him. He, um, uh, he lived, I think, into the 70s, maybe into the 60s. I'm not quite sure when he died. And when he was a very young man, 15 or 16 or 17 years old, he was studying for his school exams and 
he had a superconscious experience. And he just suddenly saw that everything that he was doing was of no value whatsoever, and he just walked out of his house. And he never went back. And he just went off and found some little temple, and he crawled into the underground room and just started meditating. And uh, he was just extremely austere. And he started meditating, and gradually, as it would happen in India, he was discovered, and people began to see his spirituality. And so he wandered here and there for a while, and finally ended up in... How do you pronounce it? Arunchala? Yeah, he, he started in Arunchala. This is this holy mountain to Lord Shiva in South India. And he placed himself on the mountain and he never left. My friend was saying to me recently, a friend was saying, there's two kinds of sadhus in India. They're the ones who never stay anywhere for more than three days and wander everywhere. And there are the others who just go somewhere and never move. <laughs> And Ramana Maharshi was one who just went somewhere and never moved and lived an exceedingly austere life, was often in silence, and a whole ashram and a whole world scene grew up around him. Um, I, I went to and stayed in his ashram for a week, and, or stayed near his ashram and visited him, and it's magnificent. And he stayed in these caves up on the mountain. I mean, it's, it's just extremely powerful. But Ramana Maharshi's teaching also was extremely austere, and this is what this is about. Um, and there's a, the film in, uh, it's in the Awake movie since I'm talking about it, there's a film of their meeting, and Ramana Maharshi is sitting there in his loincloth, which is just about all he ever wear. And in the picture, he's just sitting there. <laughs> he doesn't move, he doesn't speak, he doesn't do anything, and Master's kind of <laughs> relating to him like this, and Ramana's just there. That's, that was, I mean, it was perfectly epitomized by their attire, by their demeanor in that film. So, um, few books about the masters show real understanding of their lives. That book, too, suggested no inwardness in the encounter, Yogananda, uh, in the encounter. Yogananda told a brother, disciple of mine, Devi Mukherjee, Ramana Maharshi's brother, who was known among the ashramites as something of a martinet. He uh, tyrannized the ashram because of his reflected power. Tried to engage me in argument. This is Yogananda speaking. The brother tried to argue with me. Ramana Maharshi saw him and shook his head a little sternly, saying, come away from there. He would argue, they would probably argue about their different approaches to the spiritual path. I recall also the master's comment to us on his visit to the Kumbh Mela, a religious fair in Allahabad in 1936. He said of his meeting with Karapatri, a famous religious figure, I hid from him, Master said. In other words, he didn't, um, he didn't let Karapatri perceive his spiritual stature so that he might express himself as he normally would. One wonders, did the Master do the same thing with Ramana Maharshi? He might very understandably have held back out of courtesy, not wishing to appear a teacher in that great master's own ashram. You know, sometimes uh, you misread the actions of great souls because you really can't imagine the level on which they're actually operating. You know, you would think that, that I mean, if, it, if what Swami speculates is true, Swami Yogananda would come to Ramana Maharshi and he would sort of want to be his full self. But on the other hand, he was there to pay his respects. And so it 
might have been more just more appropriate, would have been understandable if he withheld his own consciousness so that he could just be a guest in uh, Ramana's ashram. Who knows? To me, it's just even the mere thought of it makes you stand back and say, you just really shouldn't say. Um, I remember in uh, the Tolkien books, the trilogy, the Tolkien trilogy, one of the aphorisms in there is never judge the behavior of a wizard. <laughs> Which when I became a devotee later, I always thought about that. You never really know what a wizard is actually doing. And so you look at these great masters and you, you, you evaluate them according to how you would behave. And you don't necessarily have any idea what's really going on at all. You know the story just even of Gyanamata. She would, uh, often with Master, she, would, she wouldn't speak. She would stand off to a side. Sometimes she didn't even look at him. And Swami talks about once, just a moment of them just being together in the same room where neither spoke or even looked at the other. But Swami said there was just this tremendous feeling of communication. If Master hid his consciousness mm-hmm. or from... Ramana. Ramana. I can't say. Ramana Maharshi. Wouldn't, if he was also a master, wouldn't he know? Wouldn't he have that figured out? And then wouldn't it be mainly for others that that was done? But he said he went into, you know, Karipatri and hid his consciousness so that the man would respond. I I mean, Babaji hides behind a sundry. I mean, you can't see him. Um, When master, even they tell the stories at the Kumbha Mela, when Where's the story where Babaji comes and whoever it was, Yukteswar and Lahiri didn't even recognize him? He held the thought from arising in his mind as to who he was? Yeah. yeah. But the, I guess <laughs> the part that, that, that I don't quite understand is if he's fully realized... Wouldn't he, wouldn't he be able to Wouldn't he be able to? Maybe this is just his human... In this human incarnation, this is the, the play. I, 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 I don't know. It's I baffling. It's baffling. But if Babaji could hide his identity from one of our own line of masters, that means that many things can happen that we don't exactly understand, doesn't it? it and, and you end up just, being, just having to say, well, it, it, it fosters that greatest of all qualities, which is humility. And it also f- uh, fosters a certain detachment from being able to get it all lined up intellectually. Because it just doesn't line up I, when I asked Swamiji a question once about, it was either about Babaji or it was about uh, why in the story of Jesus' life John the Baptist would be his guru but be, would be in a lower state of consciousness than Jesus. And, I mean, it was just crazy. And Swami's eloquent reply was to raise his hands, lift his shoulders in a shrug, let them drop and say some things have to wait until the astral world before we'll know. And I've always, I come to that sometimes, you know, the state of consciousness that asks the question is not capable of understanding the answer. You have to be more on that level before there's even concepts can form. I mean, and talk about just goofiness in that, in that 1948 samadhi, one of the things that happened was Divine Mother took Master all around the cosmos and Master was heard to say, oh, that's how you do it. (laughs) What? You know, you just don't even know what. So you just shrug and say, some things I'll have to wait till later. And what would I do differently if I did understand? (laughs) That was when Swami 
when I asked him how long it would take, because Master remembered going all the way back to being the level of a diamond. And someone asked me the question I thought was very interesting, which is how long does it take you to evolve from a diamond? And my next question after that, and what comes next? A ruby, an emerald, you know, like, how does it really work? Swami's response was that it was, he said, it's a really stupid question. <laughs> I was, I had enough self-esteem to say I didn't think so. I thought it was really interesting. <laughs> and then he, uh, after having said that, what he meant was, it's that kind of just, what are you going to do with that information? Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's not a question. Uh, I have to... In, well, I, I've been in places where people just ask me questions. And they just ask me questions and ask me questions and there's this certain thing that happens and it took me a while to figure out. There was, I would try to answer them, but there was no end because there was no personal meaning to the question. So I, I always try to answer questions in such a way that it gives, a, that a person can then take the next step because now that has been resolved. But if a person is just asking questions, you just have to answer them forever because they're just, the questions are actually the, the point and there's no way to resolve it and progress. And such questions are annoying. And so I think, and this actually, I have to admit, this is the first time I really understood it. That's what Swami heard. What are you going to do? If I, if I spend my limited life energy answering that question, what difference is it going to make to you? And that's why he said it was a stupid... Did he use the word stupid? Dumb. It was a... It was a not a... You know, it wasn't a compliment. But then he gave a fantastic answer just ten seconds afterwards, after he had said that. And I um, was proud of myself for being humble enough to just admit that I thought it was a good question instead of suddenly, you know, trying to act as if I was on his side instead of mine which was also part of what was happening. You know, it, it, my, my tendency when I first knew Swami was never to, never to want to be corrected. Or if, you know, if, he, if he showed me that my idea was foolish, I wanted to repudiate it as soon as possible, even if that wasn't really how I felt. I would just become anxious. So when I was able to just be completely relaxed, even though he thought my question was um, unattractive, that was nice. So I was sitting there very comfortably, and then he said, Compared to eternity, all time is short. And which was actually a brilliant answer. That it's just, it's all, we're all, we, we exist forever. So how can you say how long or how short it takes? Because from our perspective, you, you know, it's just, you can see how crazy it gets. Which he was also why he was telling me, it's not a question that can be answered. What do you do? But it is an interesting question. In terms of impatience and things like that. Okay. Anything else? Okay, let's do 197 then. The following story isn't a conversation with the Master, yet it relates to his teachings. I therefore include it here. Sri Ramayogi, whom I, Kriyananda Walter, met in 1960 in India, said to me, always ask yourself, who am I? That was Ramana Maharshi's, almost his entire teaching. You just continually ask yourself, who am I? This was the fundamental teaching of his great guru, Ramana Maharshi, Swami explains it. And Swamiji answers, That wasn't what my own guru taught us, I replied. Sri Ramayogi smiled wryly. 
If all the disciples of the great masters really understood what their gurus taught them, there would not be the bickering one finds everywhere in religion. I reflected then that, of course, the master had said repeatedly, know who you really are. You are not this little ego. You are the infinite self. It's funny that Swami sort of even had responded otherwise. You know, I realized because this paragraph was different than I expected. This little paragraph about if Yogi Ramya had fully, was fully liberated, he had to have disciples. See, he asked that because Yogi lived in the ashram of Ramana Maharshi, where Ramana Maharshi appeared to be the guru. So if he was a fully liberated person, then some of the people he was associated with must have also been his disciples. This, of course, is exactly the same question Swamiji asked about Gyanamata. If she was fully liberated, she must have had disciples. But in the context of SRF, Master was the only guru, so how did that work? And Master simply said she had disciples. So who were they? How did it play out? He never, Swami wasn't close enough to her to know. Uh, was, the question was, would they have had to have been disciples in this lifetime? We hard to imagine that they wouldn't be. Because if she's taking all the trouble to incarnate and living this whole life in the ashram, it would be hard to imagine that some of, that she wouldn't have brought her disciples with her. I mean, one of the reasons these great souls take, a, take an incarnation is to be with their disciples and to help them. But in fact, you know, you have all those letters of advice. I think there were many, many people who came to Gyanamata and just... Um, but you, you, if you, it's so simple. If you think of St. Francis and Jesus, or Teresa of Avila and Jesus, or St. John of the Cross and Jesus, Francis, as Swami was saying somewhere, Francis was the guru for a certain group of people, but Jesus remained the overall guru for everybody. Francis never replaced Jesus, but Francis served um, with the power that he got from his own guru for those people and, and took responsibility for them. So in Master's work, of course, it, is, it works the same way. This is where Master said uh, he was the last in the line of gurus. And Swami has taken issue with SRF on this. But he couldn't possibly be the last guru in the work because that would mean that no one was ever liberated. Because... It, right here and in other places Master said it, you have to have disciples. In order to be liberated, you have to liberate others. And so, if you get liberated, you have to have disciples. It's just as simple as that. But just as Francis never replaced Jesus, Master made it clear that no one will replace him or just become six, seven, and eight in the line of gurus. But nonetheless, within Master's family, just like St. Paul said about the life of Jesus, within the family of Christ... I am the father of this family. That's what Paul himself said. And that was his way of saying it. You know, you belong to me. We all belong to him. But you, you, you'll get there through me. That's the way it is. And many of us have that relationship with Swami. Gee, it's just obvious. Swami said whenever he would try to talk philosophically, I mean, after he was thrown out of SRF, whenever he would try to talk about these points from a theological point of view, they would just accuse him of wanting to be a guru. And so he could never have, never get anybody to talk to him about the actual philosophy and the principles and Sanat and Dharma. They would just think he had personal motive and that would be the end. But he became so exasperated. But the fact is, they're very interesting questions. Because if Master said this and Master said this and Master said this, you as a, I, we as thinking disciples 
have to try to rise and understand how does that all fit together just to kind of shut it down to here and then have all those contradictions just floating around out there um, it's just plus how do we help others when they bring us the same questions unless we ourselves have really gone through this different paths for different people but our way has always been Swami's never been afraid to raise any question, any contradiction any possibility and then chase it down as far as he can chase it especially when it has personal meaning for us you know, how do we relate to each other? How do we really understand? So Master says your minimum number is six, which you may hear. There's a lot of things about uh, that I, when we first moved to this area so many years ago, 30 years ago now, and we're trying to replicate Ananda here, I would gradually, sort of mentally, I never really actually wrote it down, but I would make note of all the different aspects of our culture that weren't obvious, and a lot of them were humor. And they were either humorous references to P.G. Woodhouse stories, so we had to start getting everybody familiar with P.G. Woodhouse stories, like whenever you found yourself in a difficult spot, you would say, we will now sing the school song, which is directly out of one of P.G. Woodhouse's stories. But, you know, everybody else would laugh, and people who didn't know would just think, what? Why would we sing the school song? Do we even have a school song? <laughs> but it was right out of one of those books, one of those stories, but... The other one is about six, the six. And it, it just, I've been in many places where, you know, you're driving along in a car and you see some poor, confused man. There's some man who rides around Mountain View, rides around our neighborhood now. He has a bicycle and he has about eight fully stuffed black plastic bags that are all tied to his bicycle. And, you know, whatever he thinks he's doing, I don't know. And he, he rides around in this cold weather on his bicycle with these gigantic black bags. And so people would lean out and say, one of your six. <laughs> Looks like one of yours. Or someone would come, you know, to the retreat or to the temple or something. Somebody who seemed very, very difficult. I think he's one of your six. <laughs> and you would actually have to ask yourself. because, And also sometimes you would find yourself, we find ourselves with a karmic obligation to someone. And you know, then you just have to say, well, he's just, I think he might be one of my six. What can I say? You know, I just have to stick with him. I have to stick with her because she's one of my six. I mean, whether it's true or not. But it, you can see it also actually, you see how it even has a dynamic reality to it too. Because it does mean we do have responsibilities. Every single one of us does. I remember asking Swami this question. This was the great question, who is Swami Kriyananda to us? And how does he fit into the picture? And this was way back in the 70s when everything was very... He was always being so careful about everything. And he basically said, well, I couldn't possibly be a guru because I'm not fully realized, he said. I said, Swamiji, we were in a taxi cab in New York City. Swamiji, it seems to me like the, the progress towards self-realization, you know, I'm 25 years old trying to sort this out, the progress towards self-realization takes more than one incarnation. So it wouldn't it be true that the relationship between guru and disciples has to start long before even the guru himself is realized because you're all coming through together. You can't just sort of like you pop onto the scene. And, and also when you're at different levels, you have different kinds of teachers. Swami looked at me and said, of course. I mean, I was so obvious, of course. But you see, all so much starts falling in line then when you start thinking about it like this. Every, and it, your responsibility 
whatever stage it is, everybody stands where they are and turns back and helps this one. Whatever they are. And all, you know, if, if you're, you can't lift them any higher on the ladder than you are, but it's not likely that somebody 50 rungs ahead is going to turn around and pull this one up because there's not enough, there's no way they're even going to match. It takes all of these ones in between. You know, this is the one I can help, and this is the one who is able to accept my help when they wouldn't even be able to see the other help. So it really has nothing to do with anything except just this is actually how it works. The true story is much more interesting than the cartoon. <laughs> well, actually, just, just to finish that, the question was, uh, Atma Jyoti was saying, she had this picture of Swami waiting to see if those six make it so he can get off the... Off the. Swamiji says, if, if you can't be liberated until all your six are liberated, that means no souls liberate. Every, every, everyone in the whole planet, and all of creation has to liberate at the same time. So he was not able to bring that to an exact definition. But uh, somehow, pardon me? I'll let that go. Yeah, I'll let that go. But somehow he said something, obviously something is established. And of course, merely because uh, a master doesn't reincarnate, he doesn't cease to exist. You know, every, the consciousness is always still there and so the disciple can still pull on the consciousness. It doesn't go away. Yes, Saranya, microphone. Do SRF members look at Rajasi or Diamata as uh, the guru? Well, Rajasi really, you know, was a long time in the past, and officially, of course, their official position is they can't. In fact, how could it be otherwise? You know, she's been their link for many of them, more than six. She's, she's their channel to master. She obviously has spiritual responsibility for a great many people and a great many things. And many people, I'm sure, understand everything about the path through her. So how could it be otherwise? Um, the official position of SRF is that she's, she's, a, she's self-realized. Um, Swamiji doesn't endorse that, but that's their official position, which would make it simple. But it, it, to me, it's a little theologically confusing because Marina Lini, as soon as she became president, became self-realized because all presidents of SRF, according to their philosophy, are self-realized. So therefore, by becoming president, you become self-realized. Or you were self-realized, so you became president. See, my mind, I get really, I can get really rude about this because I'm a wordsmith. I'm a wordsmith, and I start parsing words apart and I don't think they're parsing the words apart. But quite, quite obviously, there are different families within Master's world. I mean, I've met Diamata more than many SRF members have met her, but I've always met her in terrible circumstances. The first time I met, this is just too funny. We all met in Fresno to have a conference for the lawsuit before the lawsuit was filed, to have a, a settlement. We were going to try to reconcile things. We didn't know they'd already made the lawsuit. So we all, they drive from L.A., we drive from here, we're going to meet in Fresno and so on like that. Of course, we've all been in the car for a long time, so where does everyone go? Into the ladies' bathroom. <laughs> so the first time I meet Diamata and Rinalini and Anandamata, we're all washing our hands in the ladies' bathroom. You know? It was just like, this is, it was surreal. 
really, it was surreal. It was so amazing. But I've been with her in very unusual circumstances, you know, depositions and courtrooms. And, but I never feel anything, just nothing. Of course, I have been prejudiced. But I also truly think it's just she doesn't, I don't belong to her. And so, even though I, I, in many ways, much as I am annoyed with certain things, I had a tremendous regard for her. I mean, she came to Master at 17. She just gave her whole life to Master and never wavered in that commitment. And please God, may I be able to say something like that, you know, at the end of any incarnation. But I just didn't belong to her. We didn't vibe. I didn't vibe with any of them. But other people have tremendous experiences being anywhere near her because they belong to her. It's just as simple as that. It's, it's so natural. Why would we even refute it? And it would be so natural that a person who had dedicated themselves so deeply to the spiritual path would want to help everyone. Why wouldn't you? I mean, more than just, oh, can I just help you a little? What are you living for? Here then is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey. We just, we help. And if that means that we're, we're able to be used to the you know, to the final point, why not? I asked Swami a question once um, because I had, uh, someone had a dream about me and in the dream I came to them and I told them some things I really wanted them to know that I'd never had the chance to tell them. And I, of course, knew nothing about it. I mean, it wasn't like I appeared to them in auras of light with Jesus on one side and Babaji on the other. I mean, it was nothing like that. It was just that I came to them and I told them stuff. And when they brought it to me, it was like, hallelujah. I would never have been able to say it to your face. And they took it in the dream. As with this, with one point when Swami said, whenever people dream about him, he often gives them advice that he would give them anyway. I said, do they listen to you? I th- and then I said, only in your dreams. <laughs> so, in this particular case, I said to Swamiji, what is that? You know, what, what, what is that about? Because it was so interesting. And again, first he said he didn't know. And he referenced the fact that, it ha- of course, it happens to him a lot. But then he said, the perfect succinct answer, super consciousness never sleeps. It's just the brain that sleeps. Why would superconsciousness sleep? And when your brain goes to sleep, you remain exactly who you are. And if in your waking state you're eager to help people, why would you be different just because your brain is asleep? And so if there's an opportunity, through whatever connection there is, to act as you would act anyway, why wouldn't you take it? You know, it just like demystifies the whole thing so much. That was the same what Swami says about when you die. And Paul, that was Paula on her deathbed saying to Swami, in her way, Swami, I hope they have a job for me up there. You know I like to be busy. <laughs> That's how she said. <laughs> and he said, oh, Paula, I'm sure they do. I mean, you know, and she just, I'm sure she just left her body and just kept right on. Why would you not? Tonight we have covered 193 to 197.